2: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Well, Rick, I am going to introduce you firstly, and I am seriously looking forward to this chat because I know that it's going to be something that is going to be fun for me and the listeners, of course. Rick is an award-winning journalist and the author of three non non-fiction books. He is the winner of the 2013 Kennedy Award for Young Journalist of the Year and the 2017 Kennedy Award for Outstanding Columnist show off he is a senior <laughs> reporter for the Saturday paper and regularly appears on television radio and panels across both the ABC and commercial networks discussing politics the media writing and social policy I just know that I'm just so looking forward to this conversation it's right down my alley his best-selling memoir 100 years of dirt is about growing up on the outside in Australia. It explores intergenerational trauma, poverty, addiction and mental health, and was shortlisted for the 2019 Victoria Premier's Literary Award and the National Biography, among others. His latest book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, is about his journey to rediscover love, to get better, not cured, not fixed, just better. Wow. Okay.
1: I really
2: need to cut down that CV, I think. <laughs> I what's the, it. what's the statute impressive. of limitations on awards, I reckon?
0: <laughs> I think it reads me really nicely.
2: Oh, it's um, so long. I need to. Uh, that's wow. embarrassing.
0: <laughs> wow. But that is a body of work and you're not that old. So anyway. I've, keep I've been
2: busy. I've been busy. Someone said that to me recently. You're very prolific. I'm like, well, I don't know that I've got any other choice.
0: <laughs> Tell me where the passion for writing came from.
2: Do you know what? It, it came from my mum. Uh, so I was a bit of a weird kid. I don't know if that immediately comes across, but I'm sure it will by the end of this podcast. And her way of explaining me to herself really was to to tell me and herself that I was not her son and that I was dropped here by aliens from outer space. And it became this kind of motif throughout our our lives where she always reminded me that I was her alien son and that I had been put here on Earth to write reports on humanity and to, to deliver them back to my alien overlords. And do you know what? It kind of just stuck. Mm. Uh, and I think that wormed its way into my brain somehow. And, you know, I was always okay at writing. Like it was this thing I enjoyed doing and I thought I was okay at it. And it just kind of worked out that I became a bit of a yarn spinner, I guess, as I grew up.
0: Hey, you know, we have something in common. When oh God. I, yeah, when was, <laughs> yeah. When I was When I was little and people often ask me how I felt about that, but I didn't I like the point of difference. Anyway, I'm from a big family, Lebanese mm. Australians. We yep. were brought up in Glebe uh, and then moved to Marrickville, like all good Lebanese Australians. <laughs> at the
2: time. Well, I'm in Arncliffe at the moment, so they yeah. you have know, moved further out. You
0: know, but I, um, out of all my brothers and sisters, I have freckles. And so mm. my father, from a very early age, used to tell me that I was adopted, that I was an Aussie kid. <laughs> And that stuck. You know, for a long time my uncle would say to me, they'd call me Hey Aussie, You know <laughs>
1: <laughs> you you go? Go.
0: It's like if, I didn't if, fit.
2: with with kids like us, if we didn't have the right fortitude, it probably would have been quite damaging. <laughs> but yeah. But I loved it. I loved it. I loved being I
0: different. See, I like the point of difference too. I didn't want to yeah. be like my brothers and sisters. Like, yeah, I'll take that.
2: <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think I probably wanted to be like my brother, but I knew that I wasn't. And if I, you know, I wasn't good at mustering cattle and that was kind of the only thing that counted, even at the age of seven. Um, Where were you? Where did you We were 15 hours west of Brisbane. So like right in Queensland still, but just. So we're almost in South Australia on a cattle station that was 1,000 square kilometres. So, which was small in comparison to the ones my dad grew up on. So he was always a bit shirty about that. Right. Like we're like we're on
0: a hobby farm. So a lot of authors that I've spoken to have talked about how they came to reading and writing, and a lot of mm. them came to reading first, as, as you probably know. And many of them say that they, and it wasn't a sadness, it was like mm. that they lived in a remote community or they were isolated as a child or they were an only child or whatever. And there's a lot of stories like that that I think where the imagination is allowed to come free, run free, if you like, then we get people like you.
2: Do you know what? That's a really good point because I was isolated and I grew up, uh, you know, so far away. We were an hour away from our nearest neighbour, an hour and a half from the nearest town, and it was just me and my brother for the first seven years of my life until my sister was born. So I was just at home with mum because I was close to her and and she read a lot, but she just had, you know, the Danielle Steele books, the Barbara Bradford Taylor books. Um, She had Stephen King's It, which I made the mistake of reading when I was six. (laughs)
0: Well, <laughs>
2: uh, Yeah, I know, a huge <laughs> Absolutely.
0: mistake because yeah.
2: uh, up until that point I had a fairly enduring respect for clowns and, you know, it wasn't by classical standards it wasn't the right literature but it was enough. I developed this sense of curiosity about the world through her, um, not just through the books but through the natural landscape that I was lucky enough and privileged enough to to be on and to be so close to. Her. And that's it. just kind of laid a, you know, sort of seed in my mind about... Um, the fact that there is this kind of amazing world out there that you can engage with if you have the passion for it. And I, I can't explain any better than that where it came from. That's uh, as close yeah, as I've gotten.
0: <laughs> it does make sense to me because the world that books give you is, it's such a lived experience, isn't it, that it's hard to describe to non-readers, I think. And there's no way, other way of getting it if that's your world, right?
2: No, and, you know, I didn't know what the world was like. I mean, no. I can't underscore enough how isolated and distanced we were, not just um, geographically but culturally. You know, uh, my family is as white as the driven snow and, like, I had no idea about how anything worked, but I had books and and I had uh, this love of nature um, and just kind of poking around as a kid on this massive vast plot of land, mm. which was mine to explore. And it was an amazing childhood.
0: So outside of Stephen King, what were you reading?
2: Well, so I read Goosebumps books by the time I got to primary school. I think so I... Do you like <clears> the scary <throat> stuff? I did. I did. And I, you know what? I don't read scary stuff now. I don't know what that says about where I was mentally <laughs> as a child. <laughs> Probably wasn't any place good. Um, so, yeah, I was reading The Goosebumps and I think I owned every single one of them at one point um, because they were my reward for doing good work from mum um, and they were cheap. Uh, And I, you know, I didn't read, yeah, I didn't read any of the classics. I didn't know who the classics authors were, but I had Clive Corsor and I had Matthew Riley um, and books that I borrowed from my grandma's bookshelf when we moved to a little country town outside of Brisbane. And that was what got me going until really I got to university and I realised that there was this whole massive landscape out there of all these authors who had written about big ideas and, and. I was interested enough already uh, in the fact that those ideas existed. But when I found the books, I was um, absolutely beside myself because I was like, were holy you, shit.
0: Yeah, were you drawn to nonfiction?
2: <laughs> I was. I've, I've always read more nonfiction than I read fiction. I love a good yeah. fiction book, like yeah. love that sensation, but I read nonfiction because I feel like I'm in a race against time to learn as much mm-hmm. as I can about the world. Yeah. And particularly like I read, I've read more books on physics and quantum mechanics than on almost anything else in my entire life. I've probably read about 40 or 50 of them.
0: So you're um, smarty pants, right? Well, no, uh, I'm bad <laughs> at
2: math. Uh, <laughs> I would have done physics in high school if I was smart enough, but I couldn't. But I love the theory behind it and right. the language. Um, and so when it's explained well, um, it has such a powerful effect because it is it does govern the way we live. Yeah. And the ideas behind it are astonishingly mind-bending. And I love stuff like that. I just love.
0: I love science as well, but I'm I'm hopeless. You know, I don't have the brain for it often, and so I've got this friend who's right into it. So I call him, phone a friend, the science yes. guy.
2: <laughs> and oh, look, so if you I, ever need to call me, just yeah, give me
0: a. Yeah. I'm going to put you on my list. And then I I need an explanation. I sometimes, after I've read an article or I've read a book, I need a verbal explanation as well just to help me understand it.
2: I do the same thing. I listen to the same authors on podcasts being interviewed about these these books and I often find that very useful. And I've... In my life now, I still try to explain my life through these metaphors and terms to the point where it annoys my mother. And, you know, a couple of years ago she got angry at me. and She said, oh, for sake, Rick, she's like, Einstein's got a lot to answer
0: for.
2: <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry.
0: So what did you study at university and what did you think you were going to be?
2: Well, I knew I was going to be a journalist from the age of, yeah, from year five. It's all I ever wanted to be. Huge mistake, by the way, but it's all I ever wanted to be. <laughs> um, I knew that I could write. And all I wanted to do was go, well, what will allow me to write books one day but earn me an income in the meantime um, because I was obsessed with money because we grew up quite poor. And so I knew that journalism paid because I saw a Channel 9 journalist get out of a helicopter once and he was I wearing a nice was suit. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, man, that guy is absolutely killing it. I'm going to get paid a fortune. Uh, wrong in every conceivable way. But I worked all through primary school and all through high school just trying to keep that in mind that I wanted to be a journalist. And so I got a scholarship and a cadetship straight out of high school to the Gold Coast Bulletin, which came came with a half scholarship to Bond University, which is an extremely wealthy university, which I did not know about at the time. And of course, I never finished my degree. I dropped out because I had this job, but it all went to shit very quickly because I, I had no idea how to live in that world. I was too sheltered and too poor quite frankly (laughs) it was a bit of a strange violation of my expectation versus what the reality was actually
0: what seeing people with money
2: yeah yeah I didn't know I was poor like I knew we struggled and I knew that mum was stressed Mm -hmm. and I knew that she worried about how we were going to pay the bills but I thought everyone was like that
0: I did too because we were immigrants in Glebe when we my parents first came to Australia we lived in a one-room house not a one-bedroom One room, six kids, two adults. But there's no unhappiness around that. No. No, I really felt that's how everybody else was living.
2: Right? And yeah. you just don't know until you run up against it in, in your adult life. Yeah, And it kind of radicalised me a little bit, not yeah. straight away. It was a slow burn, but it was like, I mean, and it would have been the same at any university because it wasn't just financial poverty, right? And you probably understand this. It's cultural. Yeah. You don't think that you read the right books. You don't think you know yeah. enough about the big ideas. You didn't have lawyer parents. We weren't um, listening to
0: classical music. No,
2: we didn't even listen to the ABC, um, not even when we we're on the station mm. and but I get there and it would have been the same at any uni but bond is filled with people who are not just wealthy but obscenely wealthy and from overseas I lived with a billionaire greek shipping heiress mm. um, who was lovely by the way but for the most part these kids were so unaware yeah. of their own privilege and to the point where they actually mocked you for being poor or a scholarly kid as they called it wow. you know one one guy gave he was the son of a property developer worth $250 million. And he gave a valedictorian speech at the university saying that the fee help kids, which is um, fee help and scholarship kids, which is what I was on, um, were ruining the elite status of the university. (gasps) Yeah. Like in front of everyone. And he got applauded for it. Like that's, and that's what kind of broke me, I think, in that sense. So I dropped out of university, I didn't finish, and I still haven't got a degree, (laughs) you know, in keeping with my background, I think I've succeeded (laughs) Yes. That's right.
0: (laughs) I think we don't have to worry about that. Tell me how you became radical. What did that look like?
2: It was a slow burn and it wasn't until, so I, I see my life in stages, right? So like going to university was the first one that opened my eyes to the way the world was a little bit, mm. but I wasn't political um, and I know the personal is political, mm. but I really did not know anything about politics. Um, we grew up watching the Channel 9 news and we knew that there was Labor in the coalition and that was about it. I didn't uh, join any uh, student politics things. Bond University didn't even have a student union in the traditional sense because it was all Liberal voters uh, for the most part.
0: No, no. No.
2: They literally applauded John Howard when he'd gotten rid of, um, when he made student unionism voluntary, I think it was. Now, I'm just
0: going to say this in case I don't Mm. get a chance to say it anywhere else on the podcast (laughs) because I like to slip it in almost every (laughs) podcast. And the listeners remind me, I really believe that John Howard introduced hatred in this country?
2: Do you know what? So I haven't spoken about this publicly because there are bits that I can't say, unfortunately, but after the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand two years ago, it was on my birthday, um, I wrote a story um, which never got printed. And that story was looking at the relationship between New Zealand and Australia and what led to this moment. And All of the experts I spoke to, bar none, said that we have a reckoning due in this country because we have let this hatred creep into society ever since John Howard particularly pandered to Pauline Hanson. Absolutely. Um, So your theory is 100% correct?
0: Thank you. That's a compliment coming from you. I will take that.
2: It's like, Honestly, it is. Yeah. there has been something gross and wrong and corroded about our discourse since that moment. I think it's the moment we lost our innocence as a country. We were never entirely innocent, of course, because we've treated Indigenous people terribly since day one. Um, and we never atoned for that or even admitted it for that matter. But there was something modern, I guess, about the loss of that innocence in under his prime ministership.
0: Think of Tampa. I mean, oh
1: right. my God. Yeah, well, it was around anyway.
0: the same
2: time, 2001.
0: Yeah. 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 I want to go back to you being radicalized.
2: Yes. Well, so I the, like that. It, it really. I would so like to
0: have seen a photo at the time. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. I mean, look, I was radicalized for a Queensland country kid. It's not like I yeah. ever joined the socialist alternative or anything like that. And my politics, my friends laugh at me and call me centrist and all that, all the rest of it, because they're, they're actual lefties. I I hate labels and I think that... Are you
0: a centrist?
2: No, but I just hate... I'm quite progressive, I think. As someone said to me on Twitter once, they said, I read your journalism and I like to think that you're not biased except against stupidity and bad ideas. Yeah. And I can get behind that. And hatred. Well, yes, I don't like hatred. And I, I mean, fundamentally, my worldview comes from a lived experience of what others would call class consciousness or even a Marxist view of class, which I'd never read those books. I don't know what Mark says. I really don't. But I know what it's like to be poor and I know why a lot of people are poor and it's a choice made by decision makers in this country mm. because um, we saw with the Dublin of the JobSeeker supplement last year during coronavirus, we lifted something like 1.2 million people out of poverty immediately, overnight, mm. can be done, mm. um, and we choose not to. So, like, my, my, my politics is in a really kind of practical way realistic sense I don't and because I grew up with someone who wasn't particularly well educated my mum but who's such a lovely person if you try to talk to her using the language of Marxist, Leninist or whatever the hell it is, she she'd switch off. She'd be like, I'm trying to pay my electricity bill.
0: Yeah.
2: So like that's like that's yeah. where I come to it from. So my radicalization, I guess, in that sense happened when I started working at the Australian newspaper and it happened very slowly because I suddenly worked alongside people who were otherwise, um, and I'm talking about the journalists, not the editors, people who were otherwise well meaning and, and and nice and good at their jobs, who all came from the nice schools. Um, not all of them, but most of them. And they all came from the right families and they talked about these big ideas in their homes. And they actually could not conceive of what it might be like for someone to live in poverty. And the thing that really turned to me was the introduction or the proposed introduction of the GP co-payment circa 2014-15, that horrible Abbott hockey budget. And people were laughing in the newsroom about it. Like, it's just $7. Like, that's like that's two coffees. And I'm like, you don't understand. That $7 is the difference between homelessness and being able to live in your, your you know, extraordinarily expensive home anyway as a single parent. Mm. And that's, that's the moment where I realised that I couldn't actually sit back and be, you know, just live my life because ignoring that was ignoring my mum's circumstance. Mm. And I came to see all of these public policy discussions through the prism of how it would have affected us growing up. Hmm. And it made it very it's, real.
0: It's so interesting that your past and it wasn't unhappy. Mine wasn't. No, unhappy. I was.
2: I was loved by my mum, exactly. and I was.
0: I had a had really a happy
2: childhood for the most part.
0: Absolutely, same here. But you know, just recently, I went to Monvale with some friends, hmm. and I'm sorry I, for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I'm joking. It I'm was sorry, good. Monavale listeners. Yes, it is beautiful.
0: <laughs> It was absolutely beautiful, this beautiful apartment on the water, but I saw the caravan park and I remembered that when I was in primary school, a friend of mine, Michelle, her mum holidayed there once. And so they invited me to join them. And that was the only holiday. I didn't even know about holidays. That was no. the only holiday that I'd ever been on, was an overnight stay or two nights in a caravan. And my two adult friends, this was only last week, that we, mm. they just couldn't believe it, that I'd never been on holidays. Right. As a child. Never. Like,
2: there are experiences that we have that are literally unfathomable yeah. to people from other classes. And it's not because they're being mean. No. They just actually cannot get their head around that people have to live like this. Yeah. And, yeah. and. And I had this same discussion when I talk to people about them buying their first home in Sydney, and they always preface it saying, Yeah, no, I saved up, um, did it all on my own. And then I'm like, Oh, so like your parents didn't give you any money? And they're like, Oh, yeah, well, obviously they went in halves. And I'd be like, oh, like and Lovely people, nice people, but I'm like, Are Oh, but you, but you know what they say? Me? Oh,
0: but I'm paying the mortgage. Yes, That's what they say. Yes, but I'm paying a mortgage, yeah. Getting the
2: deposit is the hardest part. I pay more in rent than I would if I had a mortgage. It's ridiculous.
0: Okay, so tell me how you came to write, because I feel as though we're probably going to talk a lot and talk over. So tell me how you came to writing long form.
2: Yeah, well, it's always what I wanted to do, really. Like, journalism was a stopgap for me. I'm not naturally inclined as a journalist. Like, I'm shy (laughs) and terrible at talking to people for the most part. I've gotten better.
0: Well, I yes. didn't notice that Did yeah. today. <laughs>
2: That's because I, I, I recognise in you someone that I'm very much familiar with.
0: Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, you.
2: I think you should. I think you yeah. should. But, but like, books to me was what I always wanted to write. I just, I, and for no other reason than vanity, really. I'm like, yeah. I I had these books that I treasured uh, on the bookshelf, my favourite ever book as a kid, again, not literary, um, was Michael Crichton's sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost World, which I've got with me right now and it's torn to pieces because I just read it so much. But to have this idea that, and I think, you know, I must have known that I wasn't really going to have kids Mm. um, or have a legacy of any other kind of, you know, substantial standing. To be able to have something that lives physically in the world beyond you is... Frankly, quite intoxicating, and I just you know I feel like I had things things to say, and it's taken me a long time to work out what they were, but I knew they were there, and I've just always hungered for that, and I, and I don't think I'll ever stop pinching myself that I'm even here now, getting to talk about Rick Morton, author, like it's mm-hmm. crazy to me. I've only been one for three years.
0: Do you know um, Trent Dalton? Yes. I'm sure you'd know. When he, with his first book, and the name just escapes me for a second.
2: Boy Swallows Universe. Boy Swallows
0: Universe. Sorry, Trent. You know yeah. yeah. But when that first came out, I spoke to him, and he couldn't even say the word author. No, he said he couldn't say the word writer or senior journalist, or he he just couldn't put a label on himself because you know as you know he had a really interesting background as well. And then when I spoke to him recently for the second book, he's mm. coming to terms with it now. Right? Yeah,
2: this, I was because our books came out in the same year, and we're both Queensland kids. Yeah, um, with with you know hard scrabble backgrounds. His harder than mine um, in every conceivable way, but I was the same. Like I used mm. to physically kind of. Revolt at the idea that I could write writer. And I remember the first time I put it in one of my biography sections on Instagram and I'm like, because I've always wanted to be a writer and I'd already published my first book, 100 Years of Dirt. It had been at that point a national bestseller and I still felt repulsed Mm. um, by this idea that I was claiming something that wasn't mine. Mm. And that's another thing. That's how they get you on the class stuff as well because Mm. they make you think that you don't deserve access to these worlds. Mm. Um, and you absolutely do. I believe that in my bones, but I don't believe it about me. <laughs> so, you know, reading today what you will. Tell me about the new book. So it's you no know, the elevator pitch. Uh, I need to get better at this, but it's it's. Uh, I had stopped loving being in the world. I had a really difficult twenties when all of the the kind of pain of my childhood came back to really roost. I think. And I'd shut myself off and I didn't know why, but I was having these horrendous breakdowns and I was eventually diagnosed with what they call complex PTSD, Mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had never heard of, the complex part. Didn't know it existed. Uh, But it's defined by, you know, a persistent uh, lack of love or emotional abuse and neglect from a primary caregiver, particularly when you're a child and it's a betrayal trauma. You know, you trusted someone and they couldn't be there for you. And so I kind of had been doing all these things in my life about learning to be more open in the world and be more exposed and vulnerable, quite literally, and I realised, well, if this condition can be caused by a lack of love, then maybe um, a really broad definition of love just sprayed everywhere like a kind of like a shotgun approach to um, putting it back into the world, maybe that's a solution. And I love I mean, that. I love
0: yeah. that, that your approach to that. I love it.
2: Do you know what? It works because, mm. and I'm, it's not a self-help book, but like, Very basically, if you don't have a language for these things in your life, then you don't appreciate things or see them. So if you don't have a language for beauty, then you don't necessarily see beautiful things. Um, If you don't have a language for love, then you avoid it in your life. It's just a very basic architecture of the brain. And really, I mean, more simply than all of that put together is that I wanted to write a book that was what I like to call the the ultimate Venn diagram of Morton interests, which is science, philosophy, a little bit of personal essay and memoir. Um, and a bit of reporting, like it's my way of discovering, you know, You've curiosity got such in the world.
0: a Wonderful voice and a wonderful writing style. I find it addictive, actually. It's really Thank you,
2: addictive. because I don't know how to write any other way. And I've mm. always written. I've gotten better at writing, but I've always written in the same way. And I personally can't stand it. <laughs> you can't well, stand
0: I, it. I just don't think it's that good. It's conversational. Uh, it's I well, want- that's what
2: that's good if you think that because that's what I want.
0: Oh, it's exactly what I think. It's exactly what I read. It's conversational. And that's why I like the style a lot. Do you know what I don't like? It took me years to work this out, is Mm -hmm. reading either fiction or nonfiction, when people are writing about subjects like yours, where they can write a book but not give any of themselves away.
2: Yeah, I don't like that either.
0: It's even in a podcast. If you don't give away a bit of yourself, then I don't know how we can convince the listener or the reader to be with you. Yeah,
2: to trust you. To trust And the reason I'm writing at all is particularly this book. I mean, I'd written my memoir, right, and I'd written about family trauma and my brother's trauma and my mum's trauma and my dad's trauma. I didn't think it had applied to me at all. I mean, I had these horrible mental breakdowns, but I thought it was just unrelated mental illness. And so for someone like me to have never heard of this term or how it would affect me, um, to have to hear about it, you know, on a writer's festival stage in Newcastle, is bonkers to me because I'm like, well, if, if, if that's me, then what about everyone else? And in order to get the point across about what this is and why it's different to getting treatment for depression or anxiety, um, you have to put yourself out there. You mm. you have to kind of hammer home exactly how it works in practice. And the only way I know it works in practice is through how it works through me.
0: Mm.
2: Do you and, know, it's, yeah.
0: it's so interesting you should say that too, because I often think not just for mental illness, for so many things about feelings or sadness or whatever, and sometimes you're feeling that way and you can't describe it, you can't verbalise yes. it, you can't tell your friends or your partners or whatever, <laughs> but then you hear somebody talk about it and like mm-hmm. a penny drops That feeling. So, oh, bang, that's how I am.
2: And isn't that why we read? Like when I read something that describes something that I do, or think, or feel. it's just an astonishing feeling because I'm like, oh, my God, like Mm. here I am being seen. I'm 34. I still get that feeling every time I read and it's astonishing. And the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life is getting those same emails and messages from people who are reading my books. And, you know, I've got one recently about this book from someone who picked it up early at the Adelaide Writers Festival and was like, it felt like I was curling up next to you on the couch and that I felt finally understood. And honestly, I know it sounds wanky. But that is an amazing feeling.
0: Oh, no. I pinch myself. Pinch myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love hearing from readers. We put out a weekly electronic newsletter. It goes out to 70,000 people or something, like huge. people write back.
2: That's amazing. I love
0: that. And they write back. You know, if I've said something like, you know, my mum's not well or something, they'll ask me how my mum is. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? I love that. I love hearing from them all of the time. And that's (laughs) the only reason I like Facebook. (laughs) Because yes, have yeah. Because conversations. Well,
2: that's where the most people are um, online. And, you know, online connection has its downsides, but we are social creatures mm. and having just knowing there are people around who are having similar experiences to you or even people who read your stuff and, and can't relate to the actual details, but they relate to the idea of this feeling um, it's such a universal experience. Mm.
0: and Well, they empathise I mean, with the feeling.
2: Yeah, and why yeah. else live? Why else yeah. be here if that's not what you're doing?
0: Mm. We've got to go. I knew we would run. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, oh, my God, Rick, is
2: it? have we finished already?
0: Yeah, I think so. We've <laughs> we're up to 30 minutes. Thank you so much, Rick Morton, for your time. I think I'd like to bring you back at some point. When's your next book out?
2: Ah, well, <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully 2023. I've yeah, just got to start like working
0: how, on it. Did you like how I put you on the spot there? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Good interview. Well, good interview. <laughs> we might come back to you before then. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me. That was really fun.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started if you enjoyed this podcast leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the better reading network